Casey Hendrickson. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome back to the program Jake Teshka. Again, he's an Indiana State representative for District 7. Jake, how are you doing, man? I'm good, Casey. How are you? I'm hanging in there. So a little bit earlier this week, we actually had a conversation uh, with some people about your gender pronoun bill. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to just kind of go over the basics of it, clear up any potential misconceptions, because you know there will be, and just kind of explain what it is and what you're trying to do with it. Sure, sure. So it's uh, House Bill 1346 is is my pronoun bill, and uh, worked with Alliance Defending Freedom, who many folks uh, will recognize the name of that organization, Uh, worked directly with some of their staff on writing this language. Uh, and essentially, it does two things, right? It says that um, if a child is going to change their pronoun uh, or their name at school, uh, they would have to do two things. One is have parental permission, and two, provide uh, documentation from a medical professional showing a severe and persistent uh, uh, a feeling of dysphoria. Um, and so that's kind of the first hurdle, right, is, is that, uh, you know, instead of allowing kids to be in the driver's seat and uh, change their you know, pronouns and names willy-nilly. We're going to require uh, both parental uh, permission and that documentation of an actual medical diagnosis of gender gender dysphoria. And two, uh, the second part of this bill is that uh, it's the compelled speech part of this bill. And essentially what we're saying is that we're not going to compel any teacher or uh, principal or another student to use uh, a, a different pronoun or name for an individual. And I liken it to this, Casey. If I were to come on your show and say, you know, my adjectives today are <laughs> handsome and brave. And Casey, you have to refer to me as handsome and brave every time you address me. Right. And we as a government are going to force you to do that. Right. That is compelled speech. And that's not what we're about in this country. Yeah. And I think you and I kind of touched on this before, too. It's, it's really one of the things that launched. I mean, it is the thing that launched Jordan Peterson's career. It's that wasn't that he was not willing to address somebody in, in their preferred way is that he wasn't going to let the government force him to do that. Exactly. And that's where that all started. Um, you also had a, a major, major win here with HB 1558. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. House Bill 1558 uh, is my science of reading bill. And, uh, and honestly, it's a shame we have to do this, uh, but, but we do. And, and higher ed has kind of led us down this road over the last two decades. Uh, you know, they always come up with some newfangled way to, to do things when uh, when things weren't broken, right? Well, uh, you know, Casey, you and I probably learned to read in, in very similar ways, right? With a focus on phonetics and phonemic awareness, uh, building our vocabulary. Well, somewhere along the line, some harebrained, you know, uh, education researcher at some university decided that, you know, we're going to reinvent the way that we teach kids how to read. And essentially, what they did was say, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to focus on kind of first and last letter sounds. And context clues. And essentially what they ended up doing is teaching kids to be good guessers. Uh, and so that may work, right, for a little while in first, second, third grade when the books all have pictures, right, and, and the words are not all that complicated. But as a child progresses, uh, what we see is that, you know, they, they come into contact with these advanced texts and, and they're functionally illiterate. And so we have seen um, no change. And if depending on the indicator you're looking at, We've actually been on decline uh, in our reading scores in Indiana for the last 20 years. 
And uh, I, I use it, Mississippi as an example. They recently, and by recently within the last uh, several years, took on this issue and, and instituted some very strong uh, evidence-based reading practices in their schools. They went from 49th in the nation in their reading scores to 29th. And when you adjust that for uh, income and, uh, and other socioeconomic background uh, factors, they're actually, their fourth graders are some of the best readers in the country now. And so that's what we really need to focus on is giving these kids a foundation, uh, foundation, strong foundation for all this other learning, right? And so mm-hmm. it's frustrating for parents like myself to find out that uh, not only are our kids being indoctrinated at school, but they're also not learning the basics. Yeah, we were just having this conversation privately. Uh, my family and I were, I think, at the beginning of the week, and, and Hooked on Phonics came up, like, out of nowhere. <laughs> and we're like, remember Hooked yeah. on Phonics? Like, it, it Hooked yeah. on Phonics worked for me, and you couldn't get away from it. And that was, you know, everybody who got Hooked on Phonics couldn't believe that they weren't using that in schools because it worked so much better than the system that we had then. And the system we had then is far superior to, to the system that we have now. It's just crazy. It's almost like they're intentionally right. trying to make sure that people can't read your gender pronoun bill. That's right. Yeah, that's right. There you go. And, <laughs> and I think, uh, judging by some of the reaction, I think it's working. Yeah, no kidding. So just make sure everybody knows about 1558 when they start complaining about the gender pronoun bill. So, you know, it's like, look, we're trying to work on your reading comprehension skills here. Right? But, you know, it's one thing, one thing at a time. Uh, earlier this week, um, County Councilwoman Amy Drake, she wrote an article in the Federalist Papers, and it was about Eric Holcomb's proposal to increase the health budget by 29 times. And, uh, you know, looking over some of the proposals and I mean, it's scary. Do you think that do you think that there's enough? We'll call it intestinal fortitude, Jake, to oppose something like this, knowing that the counties would be beholden to the state government, but they would be wanting to be beholden because of the sheer dollar amount that they would be getting now. Yeah, look, you know, there's um, there's a lot of um, kind of convincing or trying to convince going on at the at the state house. There was a a group of us that you know they wanted to sit. Uh, they said, hey. Um, and they, meaning Dr. Box, uh, Senator Kenley, some of the folks from the Governor's Public Health Commission said, hey, get us some of the, you know, the conservative members of the House. Let's sit down and, and let us try and convince these guys that we're right. And so there was three of us, uh, myself and two other reps in this meeting with Dr. Box uh, and some other folks from the Governor's Public Health Commission. They walked through this, uh, this massive program. And essentially what we're talking about, right, is right now the state funds public health departments uh, at the local level only to the tune of $6.9 million a year. So that's about a, a buck a person in the state of Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the locals put up uh, the rest of the funding, and it w- roughly works out to about 70-30 local to state funding. They want to flip this on its head, right, and, and have 80% of that funding um, come from the state and only 20% from the locals, which, of course, as you know, funding comes with, with strings attached, right? right. And so next time there's a, a pandemic or whatever it might be, um, you know, you, you will do what we say or you will risk you losing 80 percent of your funding. Right. No more. Uh, we're not going to have any more county health departments going their own direction. And so it's, uh, it's, it's actually startling. And, and when you look at the actual figures, you know, there's been a lot of figures thrown out. I've heard two hundred fifty million dollars, three hundred million dollars. But when you actually look at the budget, um, the first ask is one hundred million dollars in the first year of this budget, two hundred million dollars in the next year. And so I asked Dr. Box, I said, because they said this is uh, 50% ask up front and then the full ask the second year. And I said, so you're saying that moving forward in the 2025, or sorry, in the 2020, uh, yeah, 25-26 budget year, uh, you're going to be asking for a total of $400 million spread out over that biennial budget. And just let that sink in. We're moving from $6.9 million to $400 million. So it's a big ask. And um, there are folks like myself 
uh, making sure that uh, we're doing everything we can to uh, to uh, put a check on that. Yeah, and that's every year. You know, it's this is the thing that kind of gets me is like where there's a, a, a discussion about possibly getting rid of the state income tax. There's, you know, uh, refunds and things like that that are always, you know, kind of out there with the legislature and, you know, just give everybody a tax refund. We have, you know, excessive revenues. we got the rainy day fund. I mean, something like this really puts that in jeopardy, doesn't it? It absolutely does. You know, I think when you look at uh, the governor's state of the state speech, uh, it was this litany of things that we can spend this money on, right? And, and our budget went from about $37 billion in the last biennium to about $40 billion in the governor's proposed budget. Uh, this biennium, that's $3 billion increase. Now, some of that obviously is, you know, is an increase in revenue as, as economic activity increases, and that's all well and good. But I've heard uh, some folks say we're underspending, and I think my response to that is, well, no, we're overtaxing. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's insane to see some of this stuff. All right, real quick before I let you go, Jake, I, I want to talk to you about the effort to decriminalize, potentially legalize marijuana in the state of Indiana. This has been – there's been a bipartisan effort for several sessions now to decriminalize. Uh, but where where is the state, do you think, it, it, the mindset of the people of Indiana on, on this particular issue? And then also, what about, you know, people in the legislature? Yeah, so, so I think the mindset of uh, the folks in Indiana, you know, they're strongly pro-cannabis reform in one way or another. Right? So you look at the recent study done uh, by the Bowen Institute out of Ball State showed uh, 85% of Hoosiers, and that was broken down into 56% supported um, full legalization of adult use cannabis, and then another 29% said they'd be okay with moving forward with an, a medical cannabis program. So put them together, you've got 85% of Hoosiers saying, we want to move in some direction toward uh, uh, an easing of cannabis prohibition here in the state. Mm-hmm. When you look at what Kentucky just did um, uh, two weeks ago uh, with an executive order allowing uh, the possession of medical cannabis, we're now surrounded by states that have some form of form of cannabis um, legalization or lax uh, of the policies there. And so we have to be realistic about uh, the fact that there's a market in this state already, right? And, and we're a border, you know, we've got, we're surrounded on all sides. And, and particularly for us on these border communities, we feel it acutely, right? We know that right. folks go across the line into Michigan and come, come across the mm-hmm. other way. And so, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, we have to ask ourselves, what is the best public policy? Uh, and, um, you know, we did prohibition with alcohol. It didn't, you know, and, and, and at the end of that, we said, look, the, the benefits of prohibition are not outweighed uh, by, uh, by the harms, right? And so we, we're, we're faced with that question right now, and, and we need to have a conversation about it in the legislature. Now, do you think that there is, you think there's enough people in the legislature that they're willing to advance at least, um, you know, some of the decriminalization stuff that's been brought up? for certain amounts over the past couple of sessions? Or do you think that there's even enough support to even go further beyond that, maybe medicinal or even further than that? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a tricky question because, you know, when you go around and, and you start asking folks, and as I've done, you know, uh, talking to my colleagues in both chambers, some folks will say, look, I'm not there on medical because I think medical is really just a step towards um, uh, full adult use. And so if you were going to shoot for full adult, full adult use, I'd be with you. And then other folks say, I'm not there on adult use, but I'm there on medical. And other folks say, I'm there on decrim. And so really, it's, it's trying to piece together this whole, uh, you know, you've got 150 of us, everybody with differing opinions. And so uh, as far as, you know, whether or not something's going to move this year, I, I'm not sure. I've heard in the last week that there's some uh, growing uh, maybe appetite to hear a decriminalization bill. 
uh, given that the governor had said he would entertain that. Uh, and so, you know, it's uh, it's all about having those conversations one-on-one and, and seeing if we can move the needle. Yeah, and that's even interesting to hear Holcomb say that because when, even when I interviewed him when he was a candidate, he was firmly against it uh, before he, he actually stepped into the governor's mansion. So uh, there seems to be a lot of movement on this. And you and I have had this discussion, too, over the years, too, many times. I mean, so it's, it's yeah, I think there's been a lot of people who've had their perceptions of, of this changing for one reason or another. Well, we do appreciate your time, Jake. And again, how can people get a hold of you, learn about what you guys are doing in the legislature, and stay up to date on, on what you specifically are doing if they're in your district? Yeah, so uh, we've got our, our House Republicans website. I've got my own page on there where you can contact me. You can uh, nominate somebody for my Heart of a Hoosier Award. Oh, yeah, that's uh, still going. I forgot out. about that, yeah. That's still going. That's going to be a rolling thing. So we'd love to have nominations for that. Uh, and if you want to email into the office, uh, H7, that's easy. So it's just House7, H7 at iga.in.gov, and I'm always open to hearing from folks. All right, District 7 State Representative Jake Teshka, appreciate your time. Have a good weekend, man. Thanks, Casey. You too. All right. We got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Casey Hendrickson.